Good morning again. Um, This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. Um, The title of the message this morning is The Power of Presupposition. I'm I'm going to pray before we start. Father, I just want to thank you again for the privilege of of proclaiming your word, of preaching your Christ, of, oh Lord, I just ask that you be with me this morning, that you help me to, help me to be clear, help me to, to rightly divide this word, help me to glorify you. Lord, I just pray that you be with all of us, that you, that you send your spirit to open up the word to us and to show us Christ and to show us the kingdom of God to encourage our hearts, to renew our minds. Lord, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to talk about presupposition today. That's the title of the message because this text that we're going to be in today is actually about false presuppositions. It's about having a faulty presupposition and how that affects the way that we understand things, the way we view reality. A presupposition defined as something that is supposed or assumed or believed beforehand. You, you believe something beforehand. A good example of that is like an elevator. When you walk up to an elevator and, and you hit the button and the door opens and you get on that thing, you're presupposing it's going to take you where you want to go. Now, you don't know that it is. You don't know it's going to go up or down, whichever direction you're wanting to go. You don't know that it's not broke. But you're presupposing, you're assuming beforehand that that elevator is going to take you where you want to go. You're you're actually exercising some faith there, that that elevator is going to take you where you want to go. Well, every piece of information that we take in every day is filtered And it's filtered through our presuppositions. We've all got presuppositions, things that we believe. Many of those are based on things that our parents believed or that we grew up being taught, that we were taught in school. This is why, now I'm not going to go down this rabbit trail, but this is why education is so important and we all ought to really be concerned about public education. Because the children in those public schools are being programmed, their presuppositions are being established. It's also the reason why you need to bring them to church, because we are programming presuppositions. We are, we're constantly having our minds renewed one way or another. And what is being put in, that is what is establishing our presuppositions. Um, Everything we do is filtered through our presuppositions. We operate based on that. We, we, have the, we have the ability to go get on an elevator and go upstairs because of that presupposition. We don't have to inspect the thing before we do it because we just presuppose it's going to work. We go get in our car. We, we have the ability to go get in it and drive and go somewhere because we presuppose a whole lot of things that are going to work out to get us there. We couldn't live without presuppositions. And this is well and good as long as our presuppositions are right. It's not so good if the elevator's broke. It's not so good if you presuppose that you had enough gas to get to Shawnee, but you only had enough to get to Asher. 
You know, you're in bad shape. So it's it, the presuppositions are good. We have to have them, but they're only good so far as they're true. We have to ask ourselves what happens when they aren't. As a pastor, it's part of my job to challenge your and my presuppositions, to challenge them by the light of Scripture. That's part of what we're called to do when we when we undertake to be pastors and elders. And, and it's, it's part of the deal that we need to be forced to examine our presuppositions regularly and compare them with what God is teaching us in His Word. And even saying that, I understand because I personally experienced it that the only hope we have of our false presuppositions being corrected is if God directly intervenes, if the Holy Spirit shows us truth and, and changes our mind about things. And the reason for that is because we even understand Scripture. When we read Scripture, we understand the Scripture in light of our presuppositions. So the Holy Spirit has to renew our minds, change our hearts, Give us new presuppositions that are correct. And, you know, I have in the past, whether preaching or witnessing, I've spoken some extremely inflammatory truths to people. (laughs) Um, People that I knew were in complete opposition to what I was saying. But by the time what I said was filtered through their presuppositions, they thought we were in agreement. I've had that happen. I've probably done it myself. (laughs) That's how strong the power of presupposition is. We see and we hear and we understand what we expect to see and hear. It's it's all filtered through our, our presuppositions. And when they're wrong, the consequences can be tragic. The results can be tragic if we if we if our presuppositions are wrong. Now in this text today, we're going to look at a false presupposition that was held by different people, and we're going to see how it affects different people. John the Baptist is going to be affected with anxiety and doubt because he has a false presupposition. Many others are going to actually be condemned because of their false presupposition. So let's, let's read through our text. I'm going to start in verse 18. Um, the, the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one, or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what, then, shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. And you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. I know this that seems like a long text, but I think it's very... It's very important to include all of it to see what we're going to look at today because it's important for us to understand that all of these people have the same false presupposition. So we, we start out in verse 18 and it says, The disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Well, what things? What things is he talking about? Jesus has been, he's talking about everything that's happened since John the Baptist baptized Jesus. Since he baptized him and Jesus came up out of the water and he went off into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then he came back and he immediately goes and he starts preaching the gospel. He goes into the synagogue and he, he reads from Isaiah and he says, I'm the fulfillment that this is talking about. And then he goes about healing people of all sorts of diseases and casting out evil spirits and even raising people from the dead. Those are these things. It's the things that Jesus has been doing. And John has sent a delegation. He's going to send a delegation. The, the disciples report to John all these things that they've seen and heard and all these things that, that Jesus is doing and that they're hearing about him. And they go and report to John about it and it says, summoning two of his disciples. Now, John is sitting in prison. Understand that. He is imprisoned because he called out the king for an adulterous relationship. And he's sitting in prison and says summoning, so he can't go himself. But summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, Are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Now, Why did John do this? If you think about what happened, John himself has proclaimed that Jesus is the expected one. But now he sends a delegation to Jesus. Well, you've got to understand where John is. He's sitting in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to make it out. He's sitting in this jail because of his faithfulness. And from his perception, perspective he's at the low point of his ministry 
it was just a few months ago that John had pronounced Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He proclaimed Jesus to be the Son of God who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He watched the Holy Spirit descend from heaven like a dove onto Jesus. And he heard the Father speak from heaven. I mean, you got to think about what John has witnessed. He heard the Father speak from heaven and say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But now he's sitting in prison. He's been thrown in there by a wicked king, a descendant of Esau. And on top of that, John probably fully expected Jesus to have deposed this king by now. He's sitting there because, and he would have expected that because that's what his presuppositions have told him that the Messiah would do. And all of the nation has those same presuppositions. They're presupposing that this Messiah is going to come and he's going to heal and he's going to be a miracle worker and he's going to do those things. And we focus on that stuff. But he's also a warrior. He's a king. They're presupposing that he's going to come in. What they fully expect is he's going to cast out the Romans. He's going to restore the glory of their kingdom. But it's not happening. So John, in doubt and desperation, he does the right thing. He went directly to Jesus. You know, he couldn't physically go because he's in jail, but he sends a delegation to Jesus to ask, Are you the expected one? Because you're not really performing in line with our presupposed expectations. You're not meeting what we expect you to to be doing. So are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? Now we need to understand that this is not the question of a skeptic or an unbeliever trying to disprove Jesus. This is the honest question of a believer. Someone who's trusting in God's provision. But they're experiencing doubt because their presuppositions are clashing with the circumstances of their life. That's what's happening to John right here, and it happens to all Christians. It happens to all of us. We all experience doubt at times when our presuppositions clash with the circumstances of our life. So John has sent this delegation. Now let's read the next couple of verses. At that very time, he, Jesus, cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So how does Jesus respond? How does he answer? Immediately he answers with action. Before he even begins to give a verbal response, he gives them an actual visual demonstration that he has absolute sovereignty over this temporal world. 
and over, even over the curse that it's under. He just shows them. Then he tells them, go tell John what you've seen and heard. And he directs them and John to the Old Testament Scriptures that he is visibly fulfilling. These Scriptures concern the Messiah, but not just the Messiah. They preser- they, they, they're talking about the kingdom of God and what its Messiah King is going to do. Let's look at Isaiah 35. Where Jesus is quoting from. This is where he's directing them to. I'm going to read the whole ten verses. The wilderness and the desert will be glad. And the Araba will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and a shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Araba. The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. With everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Zion is the kingdom of God. The Araba that he's talking about there, it's a, it's a desolate wasteland in the Jordan Valley that stretches from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea, and it's desolate. It's like walking out in the desert area. It's dry and it's desolate. <clears throat> that represents the wilderness of this world. But let's go on. I'm gonna, he also quotes from Isaiah 61. I'm going to turn over there and read before I go back to Luke. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is what he had... This is what he had read from whenever he announced his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord 
that he may be glorified. And he says, blessed is he who does not take offense at or stumble over me. Why does he say that? Because. He says that because he is the Messiah King. That these prophecies are talking about, that they're pointing to. But you don't understand what they mean. What they're actually pointing to, the fulfillment of these prophecies, is greater than anything you've imagined. It's greater than anything you're expecting. And because of that, you're not going to understand. Blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me because of your presupposition. Because of what you're expecting. <clears throat> this is Jesus' answer to John, and it's the answer to all of us when we experience times of doubt, discouragement. We need to forget what the world says. We need to forget our programming and what our own expectations say that ought to be. And we need to look to Christ and believe His Word, believe His promise. That's what we have to do. That's why the Scripture tells us to constantly have our minds renewed because we all have faulty presuppositions. We all have faulty expectations of who Jesus is and why He came and what the kingdom of God is about. And we need to constantly have our minds renewed and look to Him for that renewal, which is what John did. Now let's pick up in verse 24. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So the messengers leave, and Jesus turns around, and he speaks to the crowd now. He addresses the crowd. You didn't go out to John the Baptist to watch the cattails wave in the breeze. It wasn't John's clothing or his status or his wealth or his education that drew people out to hear him. They didn't go out because he graduated from from Southern Seminary. They went out because he was a prophet of God. And he was preaching God's word. It was the message that John preached is why people went out. John was a prophet. When God sends someone out, he gives them the message, and he'll bring people to hear it. And Jesus says not only was John a prophet, but he was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. He was the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant because he was the forerunner that's spoken about in Malachi 3.1 who got to announce the last prophet, the Lord himself. 
He is the last prophet. We prophesy when we preach, but the office of prophet is fulfilled. Our great prophet, priest, and king is the last prophet. And the forerunner is John the Baptist who gets to announce him, his coming. And this last prophet is going to be the one who ratifies this new covenant in his own blood. And he's going to inaugurate this eternal kingdom of God. So let me look at Malachi 3.1 right, very quickly. What it says about John the Baptist. This is what Jesus is applying to John the Baptist. Behold, I, the Lord, am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That's who Jesus says John the Baptist is. He is that messenger who declares my coming, who prepares the way. And by saying that, John is the messenger of Malachi 3.1. Jesus is implicitly saying, and I'm the Lord who he prepared the way for. I'm the king. I'm the one that's coming. But then Jesus says something astounding. And I've heard a lot of a lot of people try to work this out because and, and I'm going to tell you what I believe, and I believe that it's I believe I can prove it from scripture. Jesus says something astounding. He says, As great a prophet as John was in the Old Testament, the old covenant, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. How does that happen? How is that? Why is that? I actually heard a Word of Faith preacher preach on this, and I'm not even going to tell you what he said. It was terrible. Um, but it had to do with manipulation. It's basically using this to say then we can manipulate, we can cause all kinds of things to happen. But that's not, that's not what it's talking about. It's not about John. When he says that, it's not about John, it's about covenant and kingdom. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's not that John is lesser, but it's that the covenant that he's a part of and the kingdom that he's a part of is lesser. The old covenant and kingdom of Israel that John was a part of were temporal. It was temporary, part of the physical world. The Mosaic Covenant was a physical, temporal covenant. It had physical, temporal blessings and curses. If you've been here, when I've been going through the Minor, minor Prophets, we've talked about a lot of that. The nation of Israel, it was a physical picture. It was a shadow of the kingdom of God which was to come. The New Covenant that Christ is going to bring in is a spiritual one. It's a spiritual covenant. It's a spiritual kingdom in, in which Jesus bore all the curses for us. And he won all the, blessing, all the blessings for us through his perfect obedience. The kingdom of God is not a perishing temporal kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom that will endure forever. If you were here in the equipping hour... Paul was talking about that he, from Daniel 2, this picture 
of these nations, these kings that, that rule, and how during the time of it goes to the Roman Empire, and during the time of those kings when Rome is ruling, God is going to raise up a kingdom and establish it that will endure forever. All these other kingdoms are going to perish. They're all physical. They're all temporal. But I'm going to establish a kingdom that will endure forever. That's what he's talking about. And this is the kingdom. <clears throat> the reward of the old covenant was long life in the promised land. That was the, basically. I mean, it's more complicated than that. But if I summarized it, the reward of the old covenant was to live a long, prosperous life in the promised land in Canaan. The reward of the new covenant is eternal life with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. You see the degree there. The difference between shadow and substance. The old was a shadow. You'd have long life and prosperity in the promised land. This is a picture of what's to come. The new is the substance. You're going to have eternal life with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. And you inherit everything with Christ. That's the picture. It's the difference between, I can show you a picture of a ribeye. Or I could actually feed you a steak. That's the difference between shadow and substance. And that's what we're looking at. That's what, that's what they're not understanding because their presuppositions are all about the shadow. To them, that's reality. Reality is not spiritual. Reality is this physical world. They even had a group called the Sadducees that were religious, but they were completely anti-spiritual. There's a lot of people that profess to be Christians that are completely anti-spiritual. It's all about this. It's all about this temporal world. It's all about the physical because this is all we can see. This is all we know. We're carnal. We deal in senses. <clears throat> I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. So um, I'm going to stop right there. Verse 29. So he had said that about John. And it says, verse 29, When all the people and tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Now, is this about baptism? Is it about getting wet? Sprinkling or immersion? Is that what this is about? No. It's about repentance. It's not about a ritual. It didn't matter whether they went through the ritual or not. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. His message to the people was that they need to repent and turn back to God and trust in Him. You're a sinner. You are corrupt. You're not perfect. You, you have a broken life. You need to turn to God and trust in His provision. You need to repent. That was John's baptism. Well, guess what? The poor people and the tax collectors, they knew it. They knew John was right. They knew they were dirty and they needed to be cleaned. 
Not out here with water, but truly cleaned. They needed God to do something. They needed repentance. So they received that baptism. And this was preparation for God's provision that was coming. It was preparation for Christ, for the true reconciliation to God. And many, many of those poor people, the despised people, they did repent and they were baptized and they did turn to God through the preaching of John. But the religious leaders refused. They didn't listen to John. They refused to repent at the preaching of John because they found their, they thought they were clean already through their ritual washings, through their, through their, through their baptisms, really, through the rituals that they went through, through their sacrifices, through keeping aspects of the law. They established their own righteousness, so they refused to repent at the preaching of John. They rejected God's appointed means of grace for them. They rejected it completely. Verse 31 says, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, and they say, We played the flute for you. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. <clears throat> so John was the dirge. John's the funeral song. He's the one calling the people to lament, to mourn over their sin to repent and turn to God. Jesus is the flute. He's the flute. He's playing the sweet music of the gospel of the kingdom. I've come. Salvation through faith and allegiance to Him as our King and our Messiah. And the religious leaders of the day rejected both of them because they, they didn't meet their expectations. You know, they were expecting John the Baptist to be, that what they were expecting for the Messiah is, is their tradition is that Elijah comes first. They're expecting Elijah to come. They're expecting Elijah to come like he went up. I know this for a fact, and they still are. I know it because I have attended a Passover feast, a traditional Passover feast. You know one of the rituals in that Passover feast is they send one or two of the children out to look for Elijah to see if he's coming down in that chariot of fire. And this was a, a group of Messianic Jews who claimed to be Christians. But they're still looking for that Messiah. That kind of makes me wonder. But... Um, I'm not going to go there. That's not part of this. But, but that's the thing. They, they had the wrong presupposition. So they didn't accept John. They had the wrong presupposition about what Jesus would do. You know, the sad thing is they had the Scriptures and they knew them well. But their presuppositions blinded them.
And something I want us to really understand is that John the Baptist and those religious Jews who did end up rejecting Jesus, they all had the same faulty presuppositions. All of them. For that matter, so did the disciples and so do we. I'm going to show you how the disciples had the same wrong presuppositions. There's a lot more cases than this. I could show you several times with Peter. But this is uh, in Acts 1, verses 4 through 6. This is after Jesus has died and resurrected. He's risen from the dead. And they're still looking for a physical kingdom. They're still looking for him to cast out the Romans and take the throne, get rid of Herod. Verses 4 through 6. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? They're still looking for a restored temporal kingdom. They don't understand that the kingdom's already there. It's already there. First Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And I want you to understand that this is the state that every human being is in. Apart from the Holy Spirit opening your mind to understand the Scripture, showing you Christ in His Word, showing you how it's all about Him, apart from that, you're not going to understand the things of the Spirit of God. In, in John chapter 3, in verse 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a guy who knows the Scriptures really well, Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him in verse 3, he says, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I ask myself the question, why can't a man see the kingdom of God unless he's born again? You ever think about that? Why can't you see it? Because it's a spiritual kingdom. You can't see this temporal world, this temporal kingdom of this world that we live in, this physical world. You can't see it unless you're born, unless you're made alive and you have physical eyes to see. You can't see it. The same thing holds true for the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual kingdom. And you can't see it unless you're made alive. 
Unless you're born, only when you're born again, born spiritually, can you see the kingdom of God. That has to happen. God has to show it to you by His Spirit. In verse 35, Jesus says, Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Wisdom is vindicated or justified by all her children. I'm going to go back to Isaiah 35. Because I believe that I believe that Jesus is referring back again to Isaiah 35, 8. And this entire chapter in Isaiah is a prophecy about Jesus. It's a prophecy about the the Messiah, the coming King, what He's going to do and what He's bringing. And He's saying this Araba, this wilderness wasteland of this world, it's going to bloom because the Messiah is coming. This is what Paul was talking about this morning in Equipping Hour. This Messiah has come, this King has come, and this kingdom has come, and there's a highway. There's going to be springs in this kingdom, there's going to be springs in this desert, and there's a highway in this desert. This highway is a narrow way. It's paved with repentance toward God and faith in Christ. Jesus himself is the highway. He's this highway, and it's right here. It was in Jerusalem. It's in Greece. It's in Columbia. It's in Ada, Oklahoma. This highway is everywhere, all over the world. And guess who's on this highway? The redeemed are on this highway. Fools will not wander on it. You know, the Bible equates foolishness with spiritual ignorance or blindness. Those who have not been made alive can't see the highway. They can't see it. It's there. It's come. This kingdom is here. Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. But the people of the world can't see it. But I'll tell you what they can see. They can see us. They see the redeemed who are on that highway. You know, you can be on this highway. I'm reminded of the picture of of Pilgrim's Progress, you know, with uh, Christian, he's on the highway. And the world is calling him back, his wife and his children. They're calling him back, and he's running down this highway with his hands, fingers in his ears, yelling, life, life, eternal life. He's on the highway. Now, his wife and children can't see the highway. They haven't been made alive yet, but they can see him. And they can see his commitment to this kingdom that he's now a part of. They can see the results of the transformation that takes place and the springs of life that come through him to them. See, we're on this highway. Those springs that it's talking about, 
Those springs come from all of us who are on that highway that's planted here in Ada, Oklahoma. The springs of eternal life, the springs of water, living water, that comes through us as we proclaim the gospel to our family and our friends. We tell them about Jesus. We tell them about the eternal kingdom of God. And the desert blooms. They can't see it because their presuppositions are all wrapped up in this world. But God, through the foolishness of preaching, through the foolishness of the proclamation of His gospel, has decreed that that's how He's going to save His people. And that's what glorifies Him. He sent Christ into the world. He he set this highway. He planted it. And this kingdom has come. And all of this, we're right in the midst of all of this temporal kingdom that's passing away. You know, the United States of America is in decline. Well, it may pass away. But her kingdom won't pass away. It's never going to pass away. We're going to keep proclaiming the gospel. And if we die, those who have heard the gospel through us and who believe will keep doing it. And it's going to keep going and keep going and keep going. Until Jesus comes back and makes all things new. What, what does this mean for us, this, this presupposition thing that I keep talking about? Even as redeemed people, even as people who have had our, our hearts renewed and we've been given the mind of Christ, we have still been programmed all of our lives with these carnal presuppositions. We still live in this world, and this world is still pulling on us, just like it was pulling on Christian from Pilgrim's Progress. It's still trying to distract us. And that's why Paul tells us in in Romans 12 that we need to have our minds renewed daily. We need to... Be in the Word of God, and we need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to open our understanding. Have you ever noticed that, you know why, whenever you, you read Scripture, and then maybe a year or two later, you go back and you read it again, and you see something that you didn't see before? You know, a lot of times we're blinded to the truth, just like these people were blinded who Jesus was because of their faulty presuppositions, we're blinded to the truths of Scripture because our minds are not perfectly renewed yet. And they won't be until we're glorified with Him in heaven and we see Him. Now we see as in a mirror darkly. But then we'll see clearly face to face. But, but we are constantly renewed and we get more of a picture of Him And as your mind and your presuppositions are corrected and renewed, then you see more of the truth. And you continue to see more of it. You should never stop reading your Bible. I don't care if you've got it memorized. You keep reading it and looking into it and studying and praying for the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth, to show you Christ, to show you the glory of His kingdom. And that's why when you read it 
the same verse a year later and you read it in context and all of a sudden you, a light switch comes on and you think, well, I can't believe I didn't see that. Well, you couldn't see it before. But now you can because you're growing in grace and knowledge. The wisdom of God is justified by her children. I'm going to close by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 18 through 24. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. That's very important. I'm going to have to pause right there. The world through its wisdom is not going to come to know God. Because you have the wrong presuppositions. You're, You're completely focused through your senses on this material world. The only way... You're going to come to know God is through Him communicating to you through His Word and His Spirit, applying that to your heart and showing you His Christ, His Messiah King. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, proclaimed, to save those who believe. And the reason why I say proclaimed whenever I say preached is I want you to understand this is not just my job or Randy's job or Paul's job or Justin's job. This is your job. It's not talking about a pastor here. It's talking about every believer. We could go read that passage from Matthew 28, but you know what it says. That's to preach the gospel is to proclaim it. Jesus has come. He's King. He's Lord. He has reconciled you to God in His own person. If you will trust in Him, you'll have eternal life. That's our message. It's the, we've got the most joyful, hope-filled message the world has ever seen. We just need to share it with everybody. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want you to know two things. And it's going to start off, it sounds kind of discouraging, but... It's actually the most hopeful thing that I can tell you. Number one, you can't really change your own presuppositions. You didn't establish them. They were 
put on you externally, and you can't really change them. But they will change, and they do change over time. The other thing is you can't change anyone else's presuppositions. I can't make anyone see the truth of the gospel. I can't make anyone see Christ in the scriptures. That's the discouraging part, but but it's really encouraging because I know who can. God can, and he will, and he does. If we proclaim the truth that he's given us. But this is why everything else doesn't work besides the preaching of the word. I'm not going to go too far down this, but this is what you need to understand. The proclamation of the gospel is the only thing that saves people because that's the only thing that God has promised to use to save people. Nothing else. Because we can't do it and they can't do it, but the gospel will do it if God applies it to their heart and changes, renews their hearts and minds. And he'll do the same thing with us if we look to him and trust him. I'm going to close with a question. If you you see, if you're tracking with me today, if you see what I'm talking about, if you see the kingdom of God today, then what's keeping you back from it? What's keeping you from Christ today? Look to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for invading this creation, this broken world, with Your eternal kingdom and establishing it forever. Lord, we pray that as we travel down this highway that you've given us of grace as we're marching to Zion, that you use us, use our testimony. Give us joy. Keep our eyes fixed on you and not this world. and Give us joy in the midst of a collapsing world. The world's on fire, but it always has been. It's nothing new. Give us grace to testify to your kingdom and your king and draw your people to yourself. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and grace and every good thing. In Jesus' name, amen.